You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Randall Gilmore here. We've come a long way since the beginning of this podcast and are telling the epic story of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and the counter story of the seed of the serpent, who will reveal himself someday midway through the final seven years. And I want to emphasize once again, the reason why I'm going into such detail on the counter story is because of the strong delusion that has already begun to take hold in the world. I believe in Jesus with all my heart, that Jesus is the seed of the woman and now the exalted Lord of all. And I believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, salvation from judgment and from sin and all of its consequences, including death. And I believe in the restoration that's coming, that someday the prayer all of us have prayed for for so long will finally be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe God will someday answer this prayer and restore all things. And what a great day that will be. Even the word utopia hardly seems adequate to describe the untold blessing that's coming, but coming only through Jesus. And that's one of many reasons why faith in Jesus is so important and why he deserves our love, the kind of love that prompted the Apostle Paul to turn his back on all he once held dear, that he might know Jesus and be found in him by faith. That's my desire, and I hope it's your desire too. Meanwhile, we know that exalting Jesus in this way and loving him with appreciative love is something that Satan hates. His intention has always been to deny Jesus any place in this world and to replace Jesus with a seed of his own so that he, Satan, could take God's place. But throughout history, God has never left the world without a witness to his promise and plan and his unshakable determination to restore all things someday through the seed of the woman our Lord Jesus. Now, in this episode, I'm going to share more about Noah as a symbol of God's promise, a premier symbol, a symbol the world must notice and must consider as people decide whether to put their faith in Jesus or follow the seed of the serpent to the lake of fire and eternal death. And this is going to explain why Satan invested so heavily long ago in corrupting Noah and his story and why he will continue to invest in that corruption to the very end. I'll take a quick break and come back with more in just a moment. In the rest of this episode, I'm going to share something about Noah and the story of the flood that's foundational to everything I've shared in the podcast so far. And here it is. God intended for Noah, the historical person born into the world as the son of Lamech, a man listed in Genesis 5 as part of the 10th generation from Adam, a righteous man, the man God chose to build the ark, and who survived the flood with seven others. God intended for Noah to serve as a type of Christ, and for what happened to Noah in the story of the flood, to serve prophetically as a foreshadowing of what happens to Jesus, the seed of the woman, 
from Jesus' birth to his second coming. I simply cannot overemphasize how important this is. So if you need to pause this episode and go back and listen again to what I just said, please do it. I said that God intended for Noah to serve as a type of Christ. Now, the English word type has a special meaning when it comes to interpreting the Bible. It's a word with Greek roots and refers to a pattern that's on display in something else that comes after it. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul applies the word type to what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness as, quote, examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, in Bible college, I was trained not to turn Old Testament events and personalities and teachings into types, unless the New Testament overtly warrants it. The adage was, a type is not a type, unless the New Testament says it's a type. And today, I see this element of my training as a kind of warning against recklessly diving into types and symbols, and thereby turning the scriptures into a document that contains a plethora of hidden messages. And it's with this caution now that I'm sharing the story of Noah and the flood as a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus' story. There are several New Testament passages that invite this kind of comparison. The most well-known could be the ones that draw comparisons between the character of the times just prior to the flood and the days just before Jesus returns. In Matthew 24, 37 through 39, Jesus famously said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10 through 10, throws in that Noah's story proves, quote, The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-7 through 7, adds that people at the end of the age will severely underestimate the parallels between the judgment of the flood and the judgment associated with Jesus' return. Here's what Peter wrote in these verses. Quote, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Finally, in 1 Peter 3 and verses 18 through 22, Peter lays out other comparisons to other parts of Jesus' story and to our participation in Jesus' story. So, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 20 through 21, Peter explicitly identifies the waters of the flood with the waters of Christian baptism, actually using the Greek word antitype, and that simply refers to something that fulfills the pattern of a type. So if a type is a pattern, as I defined it earlier, an antitype puts that pattern on display in some future person or event. And in this case, Peter refers to the waters of baptism as an antitype to the waters of the flood, saying that we, like Noah's family, have been brought safely through water. For Noah's family, that happened by means of the ark, 
For us, it happens by means of Jesus' resurrection, which is symbolized in our coming up out of the waters of baptism. So it can get a little confusing because of the second symbol that's mixed in. But once again, our coming up out of the waters of baptism symbolizes our participation in Jesus' resurrection, which corresponds to the pattern laid down by Noah's journey in the ark through the waters of the flood. And with this tie to Noah's story so clearly established, the rest of what Peter writes in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, invites us to make further comparisons. In verse 18, for example, Peter refers to Christ as righteous, just as Noah is declared righteous back in Genesis 6 and verse 9. Of course, Peter goes on in verse 18 to mention Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. Then in verse 19, Peter tells of Jesus proclaiming or preaching to the spirits in prison, which has numerous controversial interpretations. But regardless of where you land on those interpretations, the comparison to Noah is clear. With Peter using the same root word to describe Jesus proclaiming that he uses in 2 Peter to describe Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Now add to these comparisons that Peter also seems to go out of his way in verse 22 to mention Jesus' ascension and exaltation. And so when you put everything together, Peter writes of Jesus' suffering and death, and then of his resurrection and ascension and exaltation. And he does all this tied to what happens to Noah, whose entry into the ark was a kind of suffering and death and burial, and whose coming up out of the water 150 days later onto Mount Ararat was a kind of resurrection and even ascension, with Noah's emergence from the ark at the end of the flood as a kind of exaltation, Noah's family and the animals subjected to him, as angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Jesus. Finally, I should mention that once God finishes judging the earth and Noah comes off the ark, God commands him to replenish the earth, calling to mind what happens after the judgments of Jesus' second coming, when Jesus begins to restore all things. Now, once again, let me be clear. I'm not saying all of these comparisons are explicit. I'm saying the scripture invites these comparisons based on what Jesus said and on what Peter and others wrote. And what fascinates me is the obvious tie between what happened to Noah historically and the overarching story of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, and the tie between both and the symbolism of the sun. I don't think it's any accident that God would make such a connection. Noah's story is so epic, and the ark itself so oversized, it cannot be ignored. It just so happens that my wife and I live about three hours from the Ark Encounter Museum near Cincinnati featuring a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark. To me, the most impressive thing about the museum is the size of the Ark. You just have to see and experience it to appreciate how huge it is. It's as though God is saying, see, I've made the story of Noah and the flood so much larger than life. You have to deal with it. You have to consider the lessons the story represents both historically and prophetically. So, it truly is no wonder Satan decided to corrupt the story of Noah and the flood, to attack the story of the seed of the woman, and to advance his counter-story of the seed of the serpent. And as I've said, this attack and corruption has evolved and morphed throughout history, seemingly always finding a way to ensnare unbelieving hearts, as it will once again when the seed of the serpent finally comes onto the scene. One writer sums it up this way, quote, 
Thus will the folly and inconsistency of human wickedness be manifest. Mankind first worships Noah, then they brand themselves for 4,000 years with all the symbolism of the flood. Then they deny that there ever was such a man as Noah. And then finally, they worship a man who, in crowding onto himself all that same symbolism, actually has a number of Noah, the number of almost every pagan god, the number 666, and who stamps it on every coin and the foreheads and right hands of his followers. So, the story of Noah and the flood was the perfect story for Satan to corrupt and to leverage again someday to advance his counter story of the seed of the serpent and 666. And that means, as we approach the end of the age, it shouldn't surprise us to see Satan's corruption starting to play a more prominent role in global systems of politics, economics, and religion, which is exactly what's happening. And which is also why, from the start, I've been warning that too many have already turned in their worldview to embrace the beliefs, values, and practices tied historically to Satan's corruption and to rebellion against God and against the beliefs and values and practices that God mandated in the beginning in the earliest chapters of Genesis, including those found in the story of Noah and the flood. But what about the symbolism of the sun tied to these things? And why does Satan include a corruption of the sun and of the zodiac in his counter story? And what exactly should we believe about the zodiac anyway? More next time on Seed of the Woman.